welcome to the Craft Beer Showdown podcast, where information is king, drinking is mandatory, and the beer is always flowing. Now, let's check in with your hosts and see what's on draft in this session. Welcome to the Craft Beer Showdown, session number 20. That's right, everyone. I actually made it to 20 whole episodes of the Craft Beer Showdown. Before we go any further, I really wanted to thank you for listening to the show and interacting with me on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, it means a lot that I can do something for fun and it's entertaining and hopefully helping people. So in this session, number 20, I sat down again with my good friend Andy Kwiatkowski, uh, Jagoff Brewer on Twitter, who is one of the best, if not the best, home brewer that I know. Uh, we did an episode back in session number 14 all about ways to be a better home brewer. Uh, Amanda, me, and Andy sat down and basically just talked about homebrewing and, you know, what you need to do to be better. Well, in this episode, uh, since that number 14 with Andy was the most downloaded episode so far, I thought there was more information that I could get out of him and share with you. And worst case, at least I have something I can play back during my brew day next time, and I'll have that information ready. So this time around, Andy went a little more specific and found the top seven methods and top seven things that you can do when brewing to make sure you have success. Uh, when in depth with each one of them, this episode ran a little bit long. It's just about an hour, uh, but throughout the whole episode, there's tons of useful information. And as Andy went on, I tried to give a little bit of my take on what he was saying in my experience, because I really do consider myself a amateur, a beginner home brewer still, even though I've worked in it as much as I have. So, you know, I've learned some of the experiences. I've learned from a couple of things that he said and had some experiences where I actually fixed those things too. So without any more of me introducing and talking, uh, let's get to the show. So here is Craft Beer Showdown session number 20 with Jagoff Brewer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Craft Beer Showdown. Uh, in this session, I bring back an oldie but a goodie, uh, my good friend Andy, uh, Jagoff Brewer on Twitter. Hi, Andy. Hello. So, I told Andy this, but the episode about homebrewing with Andy and kind of talking about how he brews was one of the best, actually right currently at the time of recording this, the most downloaded episode of the Craft Beer Showdown podcast. So I felt like there was a little bit more that we could squeeze out of Andy and, you know, use him for our benefit, basically. And what better way than recording it so that I can listen to it later. I'm sure one or two other people will, too, but um, I'm just doing this for me, basically, Andy. And I love being used, so it, it works out. It's a give-and-take relationship we have. Awesome. So um, I was thinking about how we could talk and what would be great for you know for a show what would be entertaining and you know like i said what what i could use later and i thought like a like a top five top ten top whatever list of the important things in home brewing the important uh aspects um so and you came up with uh what six i i, I think yeah six and they kind of like bleed together and they're different things so I don't know, kind of pepper it in. I guess like six major things I probably would recommend, but uh, we'll kind of take a journey all over the place, and I'll just give you really what I feel is what you need to do to, to make good beer and what I've found after failing and 
failing and failing where I saw the biggest improvements in my beer. So I'll kind of give you a little bit of everything that I've learned over the the last three years and however many batches I've, I've brewed and hopefully uh, in a way that can be understood and applied towards other home brewers out there that are looking to improve their beer and make it better. Well, that sounds good. So did you order this list at all or is it just kind of as, as your brain went? Uh, kind of as my brain went. I, I mean, I really probably the best thing that we could probably start with is just making a starter uh, because that's before brew day and then kind of work as I guess a brew day would kind of progress and then wrap everything up. Um, but yeah, sure. I mean, the top things that I found are yeast starter uh, is very important, cleaning and sanitation, temperature control, aeration and oxygenation, uh, planning and being prepared. Uh, fresh quality ingredients, equipment, and some some other things that will probably be peppered in that will kind of tie everything together. But uh, I think yeast starter is probably a, a good starting point. Okay, and you, you know what? Just from my you know mediocre homebrew experience, I got to agree with you. So you want to start with yeast uh, – doing a yeast starter then? Yeah, so I mean essentially what you're doing with a yeast starter is you're making a small volume of wort that is used to step up and multiply yeast to prepare it for fermentation. So when you get your yeast from your homebrew shop or you get it you know, shipped online to you, the chances of that yeast being the same amount of cells as it was when it left the lab is, is pretty slim. Um, you know, It's going to take a couple of weeks for it to be shipped and get on the shelves and then for that stock to deplete where it finally ends up in your hands. So usually you're talking about, you know, maybe if you can get a yeast within a, a month, it's typically really, really fresh. Um, but, you know, sometimes you have to wait even longer than that. So by ye- making the yeast starter, you can build it up to the amount of cells that's necessary to ferment the beer and not have any problems or byproducts that you don't want. Um, so that's, that's the gist of it. To take a step back, um, what and I think I know the answer to this, but I'll ask you anyway. What's your favorite type of yeast to use? So you have like the smack packs, dry yeast, uh, white labs. What are you trying to use? Um, I only used white labs for a, a very long time. Here in Pittsburgh, there, there's kind of just one homebrew shop, uh, and they have everything tied to, to white labs. They don't like Y yeast for whatever reason. Um, and I always use that. I've probably hundreds of vials of white labs yeast that I've used and I don't like the packaging. It's a good product. It works well, but problem is with the vial. And if you get a, a really flocculent yeast that, you know, a yeast that just compacts into a nice cake, like a, a WYLP02, which is English ale yeast, um, it's really hard to break it up. Like you have your yeast cake and you have a little bit of wort and you have to shake it up to break up the yeast cake so you can pitch everything uh, into your starter or into your beer. And a problem is you have to shake it up so much that when you go to open it, it just – it builds up the CO2 because the yeast is waking up and it hisses and sprays and gets everywhere. So you kind of have to crack it and have it hiss a little bit and crack it and have it hiss a little bit again and do that like four or five times before you can actually pitch it. It's not very sterile or sanitary. It just kind of bothers me. So I prefer Y yeast. If I can get Y yeast, that's what I get. Um, More Beer, which is a a big national uh, online store, now just set up a distribution center here in Pittsburgh. So it's really easy for me to get uh, Y yeast products and get them fresh. 
Um, so I prefer Y yeast personally, uh, but you can't go wrong either or just don't use dry yeast because dry yeast is awful. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that about the, uh, uh, about the white labs because I had that exact same problem and I thought I was just doing something terribly wrong. No, you have to be super cautious and creak and just let it, you know, hiss a very, very tiny amount and repeat that. Uh, and even still, I get impatient and I just end up opening it up and having it spill everywhere. Fun, uh, kind of a fun beer fact. You know what those vials are? I have no idea, actually. They are uh, two liter bottles, like pop bottles. That's what they look like from the manufacturer. And when they go to like Coke and Pepsi and whoever, they heat those up and blow into them. Um, or heat, they heat it up and then the mold suctions and it turns it into a two liter bottle. Wow. I had no idea. Kind of cool. Yeah. I actually learned that from years ago, watching how it's made. They were making those bottles and that's the, the blanks that they use. Huh. The more, you know. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, so you like the smack packs then, um, from my understanding, you're supposed to take those smack packs out like what, um, like six hours before you start doing anything with them. Is that about right? Uh, I think the manufacturer recommends like three to six. Um, okay. and, and to be honest, I've done it more than that. Essentially the sna- smack pack that you're breaking is a yeast nutrient that kind of inoculates and gets the yeast going and up and running. Um, so, I mean, I've done it before where, you know, I maybe did it within an hour of smacking it and it's still swelled up to a sizable amount and, you know, for, for making a starter, it's not really that big of a deal. Uh, maybe if you're just pitching the smack pack directly into your beer, uh, you might want to give it that three-hour window. Um, but, you know, that's, I think, three to six hours is what they recommend. Okay, yeah, and I saw the other, uh, something else that kind of pointed towards the smack packs being better was you kind of get a, a preview of whether or not the yeast is viable or not. Right, yeah, I mean, I've gotten... I ordered from another online uh, homebrew store within the state, and they sent me yeast that was like a week away from expiring, and it didn't inflate at all. Yeah. Uh, it was the same, so ended up having to get my money back. So it, it is a good test, uh, yeah. but typically the date's the best thing you can do, if, as long as it has a pretty fresh date, because why yeast will tell you the date that it was made. In White Labs, you have to subtract the date. So, like, it'll tell you when it's best buy. Oh, okay. And so you take that date, and four months prior to that is the birth date of that yeast from the laboratory. Uh, so you kind of have to, I don't know, it's always a pain, I feel. And why yeast just kind of puts it right there. This is the day that it was made. So you kind of have a good idea uh, as far as how old it is right out the gate. You don't have to do math. If you're stupid like me, hmm. it's it's a little too much to ask. No, that, that makes total sense. So, okay, so we have the... So we have the smack pack. Um, it's infl- it's smacked. It's inflated. Um, what's the next step then? What do we do to to make the best yeast starter possible? So you basically just take. Um, I mean, you could do this with liquid malt extract, but it's messy and it's hard to deal with. Um, any light, dry malt extract that you can get your hands on, um, you would just take that and you would you know put it with water, and there are ratios. Um, but you basically boil that and then pitch your yeast. You're just making a little mini beer, um, essentially. Before you even get into making that, I mean, what I would recommend is uh, there's a website called MrMalty.com by Jamil Zanishef, who's an infamous home brewer. There's also an application that you can get on iOS and Android that's a yeast calculator, and 
you take all the parameters of the beer that you're making. So when you know you have your yeast, you take the date that the yeast was propagated on from the laboratory. You select what you know if you're using a lager yeast or a, a ale yeast. You select that strain. You select the original gravity of what your beer is going to be on brew day, the volume of the beer that you're going to have on brew day, and then what type of starter that you're making. It can be a simple starter. You could put it on a stir plate. You could do continuous aeration, which we'll get into, all this other stuff. So you put in whatever parameters that you're going to be doing with the beer, and it tells you how many vials or packs you need of yeast to make the starter because sometimes one isn't enough. Sometimes you need two or three, and it'll tell you the amount of volume that you need with your starter. So based upon what that volume is, you know, let's just say it says that I need one liter of um, wort to achieve the optimal growth of the yeast. So I will do a 10 to 1 ratio, basically. Um, so basically 100 grams per uh, one liter of water and mix those together, and then that's what you boil. I'll put in a little bit of yeast nutrient and boil that, chill it to it's just colder than blood temperature. Um, which you can just put it in a sink, fill that up with water. When the water gets hot, let it drain, fill it back up with water. You can do an ice bath, whatever you would want with it, and get it just colder than blood temperature and then pitch your yeast. Okay. And you're, you're talking about uh, Beersmith, right? Uh, no, this is actually uh, – it's its own application. Beersmith, I think, has it built into it, uh, but I've never used it. I've always used the Mr. Multi Calculator. Uh, whether on their website or just through the application through Android or iOS. Well, either way, um, for everyone listening, I'll put a link to Mr. Malty uh, in the post for this episode, and uh, I have a link for Beersmith also. Um, they give you a 21-day trial for free, and then you, you know, if you like it, you buy it. Uh, that's the one I actually used, and it does basically that same idea where you can uh, you put in everything that you're doing for the starter, and then it spits out what you want. Um, I'll also link to, I got a recipe, uh, from another, uh, eh, okay homebrewer, a friend of ours, a uh, heart, um, <laughs> to, to make kind of a, a, a surefire, no math involved G starter. Uh, that's basically been what I've been doing because like you, you know, like we said earlier, uh, before we started the show, uh, math isn't a, a strong point of mine. So. So yeah, so I'll put those. Um, I'll put links to those in the show notes. So, okay, so we have the yeast starter going. About how long do you leave the yeast starter go for? Um, I boil mine for about twelve minutes. Um, any book that I've read says fifteen minutes. Um, really, I, I think you could boil it for five minutes and still get away with it. Um, you're basically just sterilizing everything. So. I mean, you can get away if you're, you know, pressed for time because typically starter from beginning to end will take about an hour um, once you get your routine down pretty good, um, depending on how long it takes to chill. But usually about an hour uh, total it takes to make a starter. Um, but, yeah, usually I boil it for about 12 minutes and then uh, put it in a water bath or an ice bath and let it chill. Okay. And then um, how long does that uh, sit and ferment for? Um uh, 24 to 48 hours, um, 24 if you're pinched on time. Uh, if you have more time, uh, I'd recommend 48 hours just to achieve optimal growth from the yeast, just to give it enough time. But, you know, I've been in pinches where it's been less than 24 hours. 
uh, and I've used that and no real side effects that I've seen or could could detect in the the final product. So uh, 48, but you know if you're, you're pressed for time, you can really do it in about maybe even 12 uh, if you wanted to. Okay, yeah, and I mean, I guess technically, if the you know the yeast you put into it to begin with was you know decently viable, um, you know, even that 12 hours is still doing more than just pouring it in. Yeah, you just want to basically make more soldiers to fight your battle and get the the best results because them you know you can have too many uh, that's certainly a problem that yeah. can cause some off effects but uh if you do that calculator it'll give you a pretty good ratio and you'll you know generally end up where you want to be to have the the right amount of yeast to to win the war on the wart. okay so we got number one out of the way the yeast starter so definitely do the yeast starter uh like i said i'll put some links to um, you know, some specifics and recipes on how to make sure that's done correctly, um, along with what you just said. Uh, what's your number two? Um, cleaning and sanitation uh, is also very, very important. Um, just as important as the starter, probably definitely a lot more important. So, and this is actually something that I, I learned recently because I used to be crazy, terribly anal about cleaning and just would clean and sanitize everything before I even started. And I, I learned that it's a huge waste. It's a waste of sanitizer to sanitize your pre-boil and all that kind of stuff. So what's, what are your kind of best, you know, best case in sanitization uh, tips? So, I mean, I, I had struggles as well. You know, I didn't even think about cleaning when I first started. I thought I was using sanitizer. If I'm sanitizing everything, why do I have to clean it? Because it's sanitized, um, but it, it really doesn't work like that. Um, so I use two different materials from uh, five-star uh, laboratories, um, the first of which is my cleaner, which is PBW, uh, just translates to uh, powdered brewery wash, which is an alkaline detergent um, that you mix with hot water. And so, you know, you take your carboy or whatever your fermentation vessel is, and you take the right ratio of that uh, powder, mix it with hot water, and let it sit 25 to 30 minutes. And then once it does its thing, it's quite entertaining to watch if you have a carboy and it's pretty dirty. Uh, to watch it clean things because uh, it really goes at it and attacks it and it basically takes off you know you know protein soils and uh, you know all these other things that are left behind after fermentation or you know just things in general that may have been there uh, since the last time that you cleaned it rips that off completely you rinse that and then it's ready for sanitation um, now you can also use oxyclean which is also an alkaline detergent um, but they're I talked to uh, a representative of Five Star before, and they didn't really specify what it was, but they said there are other elements in their detergent that you don't find in the um, OxyClean that break down organic material and break down uh, any kind of protein soil where you might not get that out of OxyClean. So that's why I use it. OxyClean is much cheaper. Uh, PBW is very expensive, but um, I've never had a problem, so I'm on the path of PBW. Um, and then you just really rinse it very, very well because essentially it's a base. So if you take your sanitizer, which is going to be an acid, um, that'll neutralize and nullify what you've just done. 
So you're kind of starting from ground zero at that point. So you want to rinse it really, really well. I rinse it at least three times, uh, usually four or five, to make sure I get all that residue off, and then it's ready to sanitize. Um, and when I sanitize, I use Star Sand, uh, which is also by Five Star. Um, there's a lot of different ones you can choose from, like One Step, uh, Iota Four. Um, they're basically all the same thing. Um, Star Sand is phosphoric acid and dodo slide benzyl sulfonic acid. I probably butchered that, um, but it's just a mixture of two acids and you just basically, it's a no rinse. So you take a little bit, um, it's just an ounce of sanitizer for five gallons of, uh, of water, mix those two together, let it sit for three minutes. Really, you can get by with 30 seconds and that cleans everything. Basically, it's just such an acidic environment that any kind of bacteria or wild yeast cannot possibly survive in something that's that acidic. So if anything's there, it just wipes it off the face of the earth. And you know what? That was um, my you know, my uh, 2.5 or 2.1 tip is if you're bottling, kegging, whatever, is to heed the warning of rinse the cleaner, don't rinse the sanitizer. Um I did two batches of beer before I knew that you had to rinse the cleaner before you sanitized and just totally infected both batches of beer, two cases of beer each. Ugh. Yeah, it's not fun. And couldn't figure it out and finally figured it out. So I, you know, double thumbs up for, you know, rinsing like five times to get rid of the cleaner. And like Star Sand says on their site, don't fear the foam. Don't, don't rinse sanitizer. Yeah, and the yeast will actually metabolize that foam, and they will use that to aid in lipid and sterile production in fermentation. So it actually kind of acts as a nutrient to help the yeast. I've had beers that have actually had a half gallon of star sand in them um, that have, have won medals, and that obviously happened by mistake. But, yeah, do not fear the foam. Even if you get some in there, it's not going to ruin it. Don't worry about it chances are it's going to be just fine. But if you just have pure star sand, I don't recommend drinking that because that probably wouldn't end very well. <laughs> no, I, I don't think so. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it for cleaning and sanitation. So yeah, and the, like I said, the only things I had to add to that was the don't waste your time sanitizing a single thing pre-boil because anything you're boiling for 60 minutes isn't going to survive. Yeah, anything that's going to be touching the beer when it's cool, that's what you want to uh, clean and sanitize. Anything else that's all, you know, hot side, like your mash tun, um, your brew kettle, you don't have to worry about that. Um, you know, your chiller, um, your carboy, you know, oxygenation wand that you may have or aeration stone. Those are the sorts of things that you want to uh, you want to clean and sanitize. But anything that's on the hot side of things, you don't need to worry about. So yeah, so for anyone listening that would be doing like a uh, uh, an extract batch where there's you know you don't have the mashing and all of that, um, basically anything anything prior to chilling the wort, you don't have to sanitize. Everything that happens after it, uh, do exactly what Andy said for sanitizing. Exactly. Okay, so we got one and two down. Uh, what's your number three? Um. I guess number three is aeration and oxygenation. I think that's a very, very important step as well. 
Now, this is something that I don't do at all right now, so you're going to be schooling me too. So, yeah, I mean, it's definitely something that can be done, and, I mean, you can go um, far like I do. I have a – and basically – uh, a welding tank of oxygen and I have a diffusion stone and I do that when the wart's done. Um, the, the reason why you do it, uh, oxygen is needed in the reproduction of yeast. It helps that yeast be stronger to fight a, a better battle and to prevent things because there's a, you know, when yeast ferments, a lot of the off flavors that you can get in your final product are natural byproducts. And if the yeast isn't healthy enough, it can't reconsume those byproducts at the end of fermentation. So by giving it oxygen, um, basically enzymes break down oxygen into unsaturated fatty acids, which are used to aid the reproduction of the yeast. So by doing that, you basically, you know, make it stronger, make it better, make it faster. And it just takes off and does what you want it to do. It also protects it from microbial infection for things that may be there. Yeast, even if you end up with a bacteria in your wart, something there that you don't want, uh, yeast will outcompete that um, and basically kill it and nullify it uh, because it's so healthy that the other bacteria that you may have won't be able to build itself up fast enough to compete with the food source that yeast is eating. Okay, so basically the only time that oxygen is good in the brewing process and in the the beer making process is when you're starting fermentation, right? Right. And, okay. and, you know, even still like adding it after or adding it to aid fermentation, it can add um, to the staling of the beer overall. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's just, it's kind of the give or take. You have to be really careful. Um, so you want to achieve eight to 10 parts per million oxygen for proper reproduction. And eight is the bare minimum. If you don't have the means of, you know, putting in pure oxygen into your beer, you can easily achieve this by when you're transferring it into your carboy or whatever you use for your fermenter. When you transfer it, you let it splash around. When it splashes around, it's going to exchange with the oxygen that's in the air, and it'll pick up from that. So you can also achieve that when you're done by shaking the carboy, and the wort will exchange with the air that's in the headspace and take away the oxygen from that. But even then, you can only achieve, you know, eight parts per million. Even if you have an aquarium pond that is just injecting air in there, you're still only getting eight parts per million, and really you want ten. And to get ten, that's when you need oxygen. Okay. But um, I think we, uh, we talked about, like, the olive oil thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we mentioned that in the last episode. And I really couldn't remember the, the science behind it. So essentially you can use olive oil to kind of replicate the results that you would get if you added pure oxygen uh, because olive oil is high in unsaturated fatty acids, which is basically what the yeast is doing to the oxygen. So if you just you know pour a little bit into your beer, not very much, just a little bit, uh, it can help replicate that same result. Oh, okay. So you're basically skipping the step of oxygen. Then you're giving, you're basically giving your beer what happens when the enzymes get the oxygen. Okay. Right. Yeah, because it's like a big, long, convoluted. It's like ten steps to break down the oxygen into the unsaturated fatty acids that are needed. Uh, so you're kind of skipping that, going straight for the jugular. And uh, New Belgium tried this, and the overall beer had more esters and lower fusel alcohol 
I think they did it in like fat tire. Uh, but the tasting panel actually didn't notice a difference between the beer that did have oxygen and the beer that didn't. So staling is a big thing with beer. Um, you know, it could really, you know, you might make a great beer, but it might not last very long. Yeah. So that's kind of something that you can do because, you know, introducing oxygen also can be a detriment to the final product. Okay. No, that, that makes total sense. And that's kind of awesome hearing the, 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 you know, the logic behind the olive oil trick, you know, if, Basically, if you tell me something works, I don't care about the science. I'll just trust you. But it's kind of <laughs> nice to know why. Yeah, I couldn't remember why, but yeah, I looked it up, and that's that's what it says. Because you're that kind of beer nerd that has multiple books on this. Yes, that's what I thought. Yeah, I, the a, a big book. I mean, if you want to learn more about yeast, there is a book called Yeast: A Practical Guide to Fermentation uh, by Chris White, which is the guy that. Uh, does White Labs, and then Jamil Zanishev, uh, that homebrewer dude. And it's a really nerdy, uh, great book. It tells you how to you know, make your own home lab, how to do cell counts, and all the ins and outs of yeast. I've probably read it maybe 10, 14 times at this point, highlighted with notes and all this other crap. So uh, if you're looking for a good book, that's definitely a good one to pick up uh, if you're beyond the basic brewing books. I'll make sure I, I'll go find that on Amazon and uh, put a link in the show notes about that too. Yeah, it's like ten bucks. It's super cheap and it's awesome, especially if you're if you're nerdy. Okay, so anything else about oxygenating? Um, I mean that's pretty much it. I mean the way that you can achieve it, like I mentioned, um, you know, if you if you can, um, you know, just find a uh, oxygen wand and hook that up to a disposable oxygen welding tank that you can get. Lowe's doesn't sell them, but Home Depot does. Uh, and you can just get that, hook it up, and inject pure oxygen. It's kind of hard to measure. So when I do it, I do I do like the first 60 seconds, I'll do a very slow trickle. And then 30 seconds, I'll do it at full blast. And then stir it and move the wand around to get it all there. Uh, but I'm hopeful to get a... Uh, oxygen meter so I can read the parts per million so I can know exactly when I'm at 10 parts per million and I don't overdo it and cause the beer to stare uh, stale quicker. And just so everyone knows, when we say a welding tank, we don't mean, uh, you know, the big giant welding tanks that you see like on a cart. Um, you can get smaller oxygen ones that basically look like a, uh, like the handheld blow torches, like those little containers. Exactly. Um, they make those with oxygen. So it's, you know, a small handheld type of tank. Yeah, it's like $10 for a tank, and you can usually squeeze about four brews out of it. I might be able to squeeze even more once I'm able to accurately measure uh, how much I'm putting in there. But, yeah, it's a good investment, especially if you want to make good beer. Okay, so let's see. Um, just to catch up, we got number one is yeast starter. Definitely make the yeast starter. Uh, two, we went to cleaning and sanitation. Uh I 100% agree. I think that is probably the the biggest faltering step for making bad beer. Um, there's even some professional and semi-professional breweries out there that let some less than clean beer get out, I think. Um, aeration oxygenation, uh, number three. So what do we got for the big number four? Uh, temperature control, I think, is a very, very... Very, very important step. Another step I do not do in the least. So, and it's—I mean, it's these—you know—obviously aren't essential. You can make good beers. It just—you got to control the variables. So, if you do have a problem, 
you that's kind of how I approach my beer, uh, beer. When I brew, I try to eliminate as many variables as I possibly can. So when I get the final product, I know there's a problem. I know it's not a problem in my process or my materials. It's a problem with the recipe, and I need to tweak something from that aspect. So it's not essential. You can still make good beer, and there's still a lot of things you can do to control your fermentation temperature without going as far as I go or other others go with the process. Um, but it's definitely an important step. Oh, don't get me wrong. When I say that I don't do things, that's not because I don't think they're necessary. It's because I don't know I should be doing them. <laughs> Fair enough. That's why I'm talking to you That's, and <laughs> recording so that I can just play this back every time I brew. Sounds like a plan. Okay, so temperature control. What do you mean by that? Like where where in this process are we controlling temperature? So this is after you're done. You know, after you make your yeast starter, you have your brew day, you clean and sanitize everything, you add your oxygen or you aerate, whatever you do. Um, when you have your final product and you pitch your yeast – um, you want to keep that at a constant temperature, um, and you want to control that temperature if you can. Uh, but if you can't control it because you kind of have to go to a pretty big extreme to achieve that, um, you just want to make sure it's at the constant temperature um, is the most important part. Now, for for a regular uh, just ale, um, is there kind of a rough estimate of a temperature that – should be kept constant. I know it's going to go up and down based on style, but what what would you say would be, you know, for somebody kind of just starting out would be a good number to kind of try and stick at? Um, I mean, for starting out, I think the, the age old adage is you start at 66. Uh, so like when you chill your wort, you pitch, it's at 66 degrees, you let it get to 68 degrees and you keep it constant. Um, that's kind of like if you read a brewing classic styles, which kind of gives you the guidelines of what you want to ferment your beer at. That's pretty much what they give for every single beer, uh, regardless of the yeast that you're using. So I think that's a good starting point, and that covers almost all ale yeast. So chill to 66, ferment at 68. Yes. And now I, I know what you do to control that temperature. Um, which is a kind of, not, not extreme, but a little bit more than most people can do. Um, what, uh, do you have any tips for, you know, the, the weekend home brewer to control that temperature a little bit, especially since we're, you know, where we live, we have hot summers, really cold winters. Um, any good ways to do that? I mean, the, the best thing to do is, you know, uh, and what I did initially is put it in a spot in your, your home, your apartment, wherever you're brewing, uh, that's going to have a constant temperature that, you know, regardless, you know, like you mentioned, you know, here, you know, today it was 60 degrees. A couple of days ago, it was, you know, 22 degrees. Um, so it really has an extreme swing. So if you can put it somewhere that stays the same temperature, uh, even in those areas like a closet or, you know, a basement, something like that, um, you just want to put it somewhere that's going to keep a constant temperature or, you know, you can place it somewhere cold like your basement that may stay at 60 degrees and, you know, cover it with, you know, a, a couple of blankets and, you know, that for the most part will keep a, a constant temperature unless things really dip down significantly or, or get up to be very hot. Okay. And, you know, just for everyone listening, the way that, uh, when I say Andy does it a little extreme, um, he actually does a great idea, uh, has a, 
chest freezer that doesn't cool anymore that he uses as an insulator for his beer to ferment inside of. Um, did you do anything to that, Andy, to keep it at the right temperature? Or does it just basically stay at that temperature when it's closed? Um, well, it, it's it's still operational. So oh, okay. there's a temperature controller that's attached to it that will cause it to cool or stop cooling depending upon what I'm trying to go for. Um, so, you know, when, when yeast ferments, naturally it's going to raise the temperature of that beer because of the activity it's giving off energy. So it's going to cause that beer to increase um, from the initial temperature, which is why you can do like 66 and get to 68 pretty easy. Sometimes it might even get higher than that if you have a really uh, rigorous or vigorous rather uh, fermentation. So I have a chest freezer and I have a two-stage temperature controller, one for cooling and then I have a heating pad that's wrapped around my carboy for heating. So if the beer gets too hot, then the controller will read the temperature of the beer and it'll kick on the freezer aspect and cool it down. And if it gets too cold, then the heat pad will kick on and raise that temperature up to meet whatever I had set on the, uh, the controller to be programmed to. So that way it keeps it within a zone. It may fluctuate a degree here or there. It's not ideal, but the only other way to achieve it is to buy an actual, you know, conical fermenter that has a propylene glycol jacket that you would find at a professional brewery. And those are several thousand dollars. So um, that's probably the cheapest way to replicate the same thing that you would get in a brewery in the home environment. It's with a heating pad, a two-stage temperature controller, and a freezer. Um, you know, I thought maybe just a heating pad with an analog controller that's one stage would work. I tried a whole bunch of different trials and errors before realizing that that's really the only way that you can do it. Okay. So basically what you're saying with the conical fermenter with the glycol chiller is you're naming your Christmas list, right? Right, exactly. So, you know, find okay. me on Amazon, you know, have it shipped and, you know, might maybe find me a, a place that I can actually build a brewery as well and a, a couple hundred thousand dollars to back that up and we'll be in good shape. Oh, okay. Sure. No problem. I'm sure someone listening will be able to give you that. Uh, I'm sure someone's a con, so it is the season after all. <laughs> okay. So number four there, temperature control. Um, yeah. The most temperature control I had was uh, brewing in the summer and putting it in my basement wrapped in a light blanket. So... Yeah, I think um, now now would um, one of the laser kind of uh, the air sensors for temperature be good to test out with if you shot the side of the carboy? Do you think? Um, I mean, yeah, you can definitely use that. I mean, there, there's something easier though. Um, a lot of uh, brewing stores and websites will actually give you a sticker um, oh, that okay. you just put on the side of your your fermentation vessel and. It only reads in two-degree increments, but it works pretty well. Uh, it's quite accurate, uh, and it's pretty cheap. It's only a couple bucks to buy, and based upon the temperature, it'll just show, like, blue will be far off, but if it's green, that's right where it is. Um, so that's what I used to do before I had, like, the two stages. I, all my carboys have that. I don't use them anymore, but uh, that's what I used initially to uh, check the temperature. But that would also work as well, as long as you have a good one. Oh, okay. No, that makes total sense. So, like, what you see on uh, fish tanks. Exactly, yeah. Same thing, oh. just you strap it on the fermenter and it tells you the same information. Yeah, oh, that makes sense. 
Well, you probably saved me like fifty bucks there. Thank you. Well, you can you can get. I have one. It's like twenty bucks. Uh, that works pretty well, but it's maybe ten degrees off. It's still something if you if you're nerdy and you want good equipment, that's something I would recommend because that's just a good thing I use for my starter. Uh, you know, like I said, cooler than blood temperature, but I'm kind of anal, so I like to make sure it's like at 68 when I do my starter. So I use that to to make that determination. I think they're only like 15, 20 bucks on Amazon. Oh, okay. I'll see if I can find a decent one that you like, and I'll put a link to it too. Yeah, if you, if you search like the first like infrared thermometer, the first one that pulls up, I think, is the one that I have, uh, and it's got pretty good reviews, and it served me pretty well so far. Okay, so I think that's – is there anything else for temperature control you want to mention? Uh, just – I mean another thing like uh, to keep it at a constant temperature if you're in a place that fluctuates a lot, um, you know, just taking it a step further, you can just get a tub at like a Walmart or a hardware store or something like that and just put a water bath in it. And that water bath will kind of act as a buffer against any major temperature swings. Uh, oh, so okay. that's another thing that you can do to keep it at a constant temperature because, you know, if it gets too hot, then you're going to get esters that you don't want. If it gets too cold, you're going to get esters that you don't want, or it may stall out and not ferment all the way. Uh, so by putting it in a, a big tub that would be a water bath, that's kind of a way to kind of negate that buffer if there's a temperature swing. No, that I wouldn't even thought of. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, so temperature control, we got that covered. What is your big number five? Um, well, I guess I'm kind of a little bit all over the place with the, the last couple ones. Um, <laughs> I guess planning and being prepared is, is probably uh, a good thing. Um, I find that the, the more that you think ahead when you're brewing, um, the more that you're prepared because – Inherently, I, I don't know what it is about brewing, but there's always things that go wrong, and there's variables that you can't plan for. So if you're always thinking three steps ahead of what you should be doing at that time, if something like that pops up, you're you're really ready for it, and it's not going to kill your brew day. You know what? I got to agree with you 100% there. The uh, last brew I did was my first uh, – I made a uh, – um, a mash tun out of uh, two plastic uh, buckets, like fermenting buckets. And it was my first time kegging, so I was kind of anal about making sure everything was right. So I went through and wrote down all the steps I'd be doing and then just kept looking back at that list as I did each one to go as many ahead as I could. So like you said about how long you have to leave the cleaner on and the, the sanitizer, and I tried to do all of that as far ahead as I could in the process while I was just watching things boil or mash or... All that kind of stuff. So I, I'm i weird when it comes to planning. I have to agree with you there totally. Yeah, I mean it's you know, it's all a matter of repetition. The more that you do it, the more acclimated you're going to get to the process and you're going to know what you should be doing when. Um, you know, especially if you're doing all grain, you know, well, you know, everything's converting and things like that. It really uh, – you know, there, there's a lot of downtime and there's a lot of stuff that you could, you know, there are times where I get lazy when I brew and, you know, maybe I just want to watch Netflix or, or, you know, do this or that. Uh, and that's definitely something that you can do. But I find that, you know, the brew days that I have where, you know, you know, maybe my mash is going, but, you know, I have to clean this fermenter or I have to cake this beer or I have to wash this yeast or, or do what have, you know, whatever uh, I might have to do. It makes my brew day go faster and I don't know, I kind of enjoy it more for some reason than the days because the days that I'm lazy I always regret at the end 
because I'm always like, man, if I would have did this, then I wouldn't be here. And especially if something goes wrong, it kind of all spirals out of control. So by getting to learn the process and doing the things that you should be doing way ahead of time, uh, it just makes things a lot easier in the end. And you can wrap up brew days much quicker than if you get lazy and just wait for the last minute to do everything. Because you can certainly do that, and I do that sometimes as well. But uh, generally, if you're if you're prepared, you're used to your process that's the best thing. And if you're new to homebrewing, find someone you know that, you know, chances are you probably already know a homebrewer that's been doing it way longer than, than you have. You know, stop by on their brew day. You know, if you want to see me brew, come by. Uh, I'll gladly show you what I do. We'll talk about the process, what have you. That's the best way to learn is to see someone else do it and see what they're doing. And that kind of gives you the idea and gets, gets you know, gets that kind of knowledge there that you need to figure out what you should be doing and when you should be doing it. And with that, kind of going back to something we mentioned a little while ago, was that uh, the the Beersmith software, that is probably the single biggest aid to planning my brew day that I've done so far. Yeah, with it I, syncing over to the the app for the iPhone, iPad, to you know to give you your timers and stuff. That, like I said, I'm weird when it comes to timing and planning and stuff. So doing that with that Beersmith, that was probably one of the biggest things someone showed me yeah it's it's awesome i use it as well um it's really good because i mean sometimes you know you might plan for a certain target original gravity and when you take your your pre-boil it might not be up to snuff and you're not going to end up where you are so you might have to shave back some of your bittering additions and things like that makes it really easy if you already have that recipe laid out you know exactly what you're doing and you can just go through uh and it also keeps a record of you know what you're doing so if you have something that's going wrong you can make a note of that and refer back to it when you do your tasting notes uh if you go that far so uh keeping a record is a very very important part as well and i think beersmith uh, without a doubt it's the best software to use i've used quite a few uh and they don't quite compare to beersmith yeah and they're uh um they they do a, a newsletter and a podcast too and it's pretty pretty interesting yeah, it's really good. Um, the Brewing Network's a good one, but I think a lot of the times they kind of suck. And uh, I think uh, Beersmith is just really straightforward, uh, very easy to understand information, especially if you're just starting. No, I, As somebody who, even though runs a beer website, as someone who I still consider myself basically still starting, I agree with you 100%. I'm still starting, man. It's... Yeah. It's it's going to take forever for me to – I think I'll never be able to achieve all that I want in terms of knowledge. So you always continue learning and trying to make things better, and uh, it's a long, long journey. Well, I think that – you know, to add in my, my extra point, uh, you know, half tips here, uh, 5.1 would be to uh, learn as much as you can. That The, the more books I've read, like we had uh, Randy Mosher on for a couple episodes ago. Um, reading some of his books has totally changed the way I looked at a lot of things with brewing and kind of altered my, you know, altered the way I brew. Uh, I went and brewed with you, Andy, a couple times, some other friends, uh, learn a little bit every single time. Yeah. I mean, it, t- it takes a lot. And I mean, you know, for, for brewing science, it's really only been, you know, maybe 110 years um, that we've really had put into brewing science. I mean, for a long time, uh, no one had any idea what yeast was. You know, we have Louis Pasteur to, to thank for that, and that's really what kind of kicked off brewing science. But even reading 
some of the brewing books, like we mentioned the yeast books, there, there's a hop book as well. And the only thing that I really learned about reading that book is we really don't know a single thing about hops. Um, it's all kind of conjecture, and there's a lot of science that still has to be applied to it. And craft beer is, I think, certainly giving that attention, uh, but still, we're we're pretty clueless. So, you know, a book that you may have read five years ago that was great five years ago, but there's probably, you know, a lot more studies to back up a lot more information that you may not have considered. So, you always want to try to continue and learn and evolve because things are not the same. They're always changing, and we're always learning more. So, if you want to be the best possible brewer that you can be, you always want to continue to to learn and grow with the uh, with the field or hobby, however you see it. No, definitely. I agree with that 100% again. Um, okay, so the planning, be prepared. So we want to think ahead, look at, you know, look five steps ahead in your recipe and see what's coming down the, the pipe to make sure you're ready for it. Um, I, you know, that's that kind of hits home for me. I've gotten to steps that I wasn't prepared for and had to leave things sit and hope and pray that they didn't get infected and, you know, things like that. Uh, the keep a record thing with Beersmith, before I had Beersmith, I used a uh, Moleskine notebook and just, you know, filled it. I would do, I'd write my recipe out and the steps I had to do step by step, you know, one, two, three. And then the the next page would be everything I did to it after that. So what I did for fermentation, uh, how I bottled it, any problems I ran into so that if I ran into a weird step, you know, something weird that happened when I was bottling and once the beer is carbonated, if I went back and tasted it and it tasted bad, I could go look at what weird things happened that I'd make a note of what it tasted like. So later when it tasted bad again, I could see it. That's kind of part one of how I figured out I was cleaning incorrectly and not rinsing the cleaner off is because my tasting notes of those beers were equally horrible. So I, I knew that one of the things I had to do was the same and the, you know, talked with someone else and the rinsing was the problem. So, yeah. So that's number five. Uh, anything else for planning, being prepared? Uh, no, that's pretty much it. So we said we had six of them. What's, uh, well, what are we bringing it home with? We can, I guess seven, really. Um, the, the next one's just fresh quality ingredients, I think, is also a very, very important part of brewing. Okay. So what what do you consider fresh? Because mo- like you said, how Pittsburgh has basically one good home brew shop. And there's some other distributors um, in the Pittsburgh area that are starting to have some really good ingredients, I think, um, and outside of the Pittsburgh area. Um, I've noticed beer distributors seem to be having a lot of those lately. But what would you consider fresh ingredients? Um, just, I mean – Try to get it from the best source that you can possibly uh, get it from. So, like, you know, we you mentioned we have some local places, but they don't have really high turnover. Um, so if I'm looking for specialty grains, um, you know, I, I usually try to use some connections that I have from some breweries locally uh, to get, like, my base malt. Um, but, you know, for specialty malt, um, usually what I end up doing is just going through – 
somewhere like Morbier. They have a lot of turnover, so they're getting you know continually fresh shipments. They take care of their stuff, so I know what I'm getting isn't a you know crystal 40 malt that may have been sitting in you know a garage somewhere for you know however many months before I got it that may be cool and damp. Um, so just trying to source them from the best areas possible, and from my experience, just a, a home brewer that has a high volume turnover uh, it, uh, is going to be the the best place for you to get those from. Um, or like hops, you know, hops are very important that they you know are vacuum sealed, you know, preferably sealed uh, with some nitrogen to prevent staling and kept as cold as possible. Um, you know, some homebrew shops, when you get a thing of hops, it's in a Ziploc bag and they're just, Oh, you know, I hate that. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's a clear one. So they get skunked, uh, if they're exposed to light anywhere in transit or, you know, when they're getting things together. And uh, for a long time, I could never f- figure out why my IPA was never very good, uh, despite what I would do to it. And I found out that, you know, it was basically cause I was getting you know, those hops in that Ziploc bag and they were just oxidized and just really gross tasting. Um, so hops direct makes it really easy because they have, you know, uh, light proof, uh, nitrogen sealed packaging. Um, so, you know, it's pretty much going to be fresh, even if refrigerated, that's another big thing to keep them frozen. So, uh, usually, you know, hops come out, you know, in the fall, if you do leaf, you can get them right then towards the winter. Like we are right now, you can get pellets, and usually I'll buy those as soon as they're available, get them and throw them in the freezer and not take them out until until brew day. And then when I use them, I have my own vacuum sealer to ensure that they stay fresh. So, you know, even hops that might be over a year old, sometimes I, I have to run into that supply because I may have bought enough and not used all of it. I can still use those because I know that they've been kept at the, you know, at the right um the right conditions really so uh just trying to source it from the best place possible and then also like with malt um you always want to you know find the best maltster because you know the two row malt that you may get from um you know this particular company might not be as good as the two rail two row malt uh that you would get from this other company so trying to source like your base malt or your specialty malt from the best maltsters possible is a really important thing as well um so that's something that i try to try to practice with also and do you have any suggestions for a a good uh you know malter um so i mean there there are quite a few out there and you know breeze is kind of a standard and they make okay stuff but in comparison for for me personally, and I, I think there are other people that differ on this, but for any kind of two-row that I'm using or American Pale Malt, I like a Canadian Superior Malting Group. Um, that's what I personally prefer in any IPA or American beer. That is always my go-to base malt. If I'm making an English beer, uh, Thomas Fawcett and Crisp are two very, very good ones. Baird's is very good as well, but um, I did a – kind of a, a an experiment with a friend where we made the same recipe of an extra special bitter but we all used different types of maris otter and we found that crisp was the best maris otter thomas fawcett was second um baird's was third and then fourth was or no maybe baird's was fourth i can't remember what the other one was um so 
if you kind of look around and talk to other brewers, you can kind of find it. But usually the, the best mulchers are uh, Thomas Fawcett and Crisp are probably the two best ones. So anything that you can source for them is going to be great, especially if you're doing an English beer. Uh, if you're doing a Belgian beer, uh, you kind of want to generally source your malt from mulchers that uh, originate in Belgium or France. Um, I use a company called Moultrie Soufflé or something like that. Moultrie something, I forget. It's not Soufflé, but it starts with an S. Um, they're available through the Country Malting Group. That's what I use for all my Pilsner. Or if you're doing something German, um, Best Malls or um, Wireman are the two big ones for German-based malts. Well, you know, that's something I really – I never really thought about was getting – specific malt you know usually it's just you know whatever the whatever the color is whatever the the specialty malt is and then just you know whatever's in the bag next to it at the brewing store so that's that's a pretty good one for me yeah i mean maltsters don't get enough credit because they do almost all of the work for you so when you get it all you have to do is just crack it open and put it in some uh, temperature specific water and get the results that you want. Um, you know, their process and procedures and where they source their grain from is really going to have a huge influence in the final beer that you make. And, you know, some of the differences for very good ones might be very subtle. Um, but, you know, generally you, you want to stick with the best ones because they have a process that's probably been for hundreds of years for, you know, the, the English and German uh, maltsters that I had mentioned. Um, so they really have a lot of time and effort dedicated into their product and craft, and they take it very seriously. So uh, definitely a very, very important thing. Okay, so anything else for tips on ingredients? No, no, that's that's pretty much it. Okay, so you said you had seven, right? Yeah, I mean the last one's just really equipment. Um, it's just kind of if you if you're obsessed with a hobby and you have the money to spend and invest. Um, you know, for me, I have a lot of gadgets and a lot of toys that I've purchased. Um, and you know, they are the things that I think have made the biggest difference in my beer because I mean, if you don't have those resources, you can still make great beer. But, uh, I think these are the things that kind of led me on the path to making, you know, a quality product in the end. Yeah. And I think my, my add on to that one would be to do your research as to where you can skimp. Um, like I said, I knew I made my, uh, you know, I, I, I did my, um, mash ton out of the two, uh, plastic barrels or not pla barrels, but the, uh, like painters buckets and, you know, drilled the holes in the bottom and put one in top one inside the other. Um, one of these days I'll get around to making a post on how I made that. Um, but I just did, did a search on YouTube as to how to make a mash ton and got, you know, 10 different ways of doing it. Uh, I think if you want to get the best possible and you don't have a lot of money, if you do a little bit of looking around on sites like my site, uh, a couple other of the, you know, the home brewing and beer specific sites out there, and especially YouTube, you can really make some things that are going to be very comparable to the, you know, the semi-pro and the professional uh, equipment. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it, it, it kind of like what we kind of gone over, you notice we really didn't mention anything about the process of brewing. Um, you know, everything is kind of after you're done brewing. So any of those materials that you need during the process really don't 
make a whole lot of difference uh, in your final prop. You can mess up pretty bad and still, in the end, make very, very good beer. Um, you know, when you start to nitpick and look at everything, that's certainly going to to become a larger part of your process. But at the end of the day, focusing on things after you're done boiling is probably the most important. I guess for equipment, that's definitely where I would recommend it. Um, you know, the, the first thing I'd probably recommend is a stir plate. Um, you know, a stir plate is basically when you make your, your starter, you take that, you know, if you can get an Erlenmeyer flask, which is just, um, you know, glass that's, you know, shock resistant to temperature, heat resistant, so you can boil directly in it. You put a, a magnetic stir bar on uh, in the, uh, the wart that you boil for your starter, put it on that stir plate, and then the, the magnets will stir that bar and cause oxygen to continually be introduced into that beer so it can help with the reproduction and the lipids and the sterols and all the things that we had mentioned. So a stir plate, you can make that for pretty cheap if you're if you're handy, or you can purchase them for you know anywhere from like sixty to two hundred dollars, uh, depending upon what you're getting. But I think that's a pretty important thing because that's going to make sure that you have the the strongest yeast possible when it comes to fermentation. And even if you don't do the stir plate, what I one of the bigger things I did for doing uh, yeast starters was just buying the Erlenmeyer flask and doing that on the doing the yeast starter on the stove so doing the uh the boil of the dry malt extract just using the erlenmeyer flask on my stove uh it was less things to clean less things to sanitize exactly went from stove to ice bath in one shot and i mean something i wouldn't recommend putting it in the ice bath because i had a lot that cracked for a long time and i never really understood why because i would take it straight from boiling to the ice bath um, and you know, maybe six months down the line, they would kind of crack on their own, even not even doing that. Like I put like cold grains to, uh, uh, or dark grains rather than a cold steep them, uh, in a 5,000 milliliter Erlenmeyer. And I just swirled it around. There was no temperature change. There was, everything was room temperature and it cracked and, you know, oh, wow. it was, you know, that was a pretty expensive, uh, purchase that was down the drain. So I kind of recommend letting it cool for five minutes before you put it in the ice bath because the ones that I've started to treat like that have lasted a couple years were the ones that I took directly to it even though they might not initially break over time end up breaking no that's a pretty good money saving tip I'll make sure I do that next time yeah because I've, I've spent a lot of money uh, on Erlenmeyer flask and I could never figure out why because it's like oh yeah no this is thermal shock resistant but uh i found that you know if i just let it basically cool for maybe four or five minutes and then put it in the uh the ice bath that's where i've had the most success and if you're using the erlenmeyer flask always 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 watch it before it boils uh because the hot break can get out of control and in yes. that narrow neck container can go absolutely everywhere so when you get close to boil make sure you have some oven mitts handy uh, because you're going to have to move it off that burner pretty quick. Otherwise, you're just going to end up with wart all over your stove. And if you're using an electric stove, you cannot use the Erlenmeyer. You have to boil it in a saucepan and then transfer it. You can only use that on a glass stove or a gas stove. Oh, really? Why is that? Um, just I think the if it's directly on the electric, it can break the, the bottom of it pretty easily. Now, what if you're – what if it's uh, – are you talking about the ones with the coils or the glass top stoves? The coils. 
Oh, okay. So just because they get so be... hot, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, what I've read. I was gonna is say because even... I, I did mine straight on the stove, and I have a glass top electric. So yeah, I mean that that might be the difference. I think the coils maybe get too hot and crack it. Um, oh, okay. So yeah, I've just read never always do it on a gas stove, but oh, okay. yeah. If, I've never tried it, so someone can definitely prove me wrong there. But I think like uh, Brewing TV has a video on making a yeast starter with Michael Dawson. That's also a very good thing to check out, and I can give you a link to that that you can yeah. post because uh, that's kind of how I learned to make a yeast starter is from that video. And in that okay. video, he mentions not to do it on an electric stove, but if you have that glass top, then that might make the difference. Well, it didn't break on me yet, but that's you, you brew a lot more than me, so I would trust – your experience a little more in mine. Yeah, as long as it doesn't break, that's all that matters. Okay, so we got the stir plate, the Erlmeyer flask, uh, any other major uh, equipment. I know you mentioned like the the oxygen and the right and temperature control. Um, the other thing is just a plate chiller. Um, that's probably the most important thing. Um, a plate chiller is you know it's an expensive resource, and you might need a pump or something like that, and it's not entirely necessary. But for me, I have a Blickman Therminator, and it chills. I have well water where I brew, um, and it chills just so quickly. It's insane. You know, boiling to collecting all five gallons in 10 minutes. Um, and, you know, if I want to knock it down below, like, you know, 60, which I can do in the winter, uh, maybe that'll take, like, 15 minutes. Um, so if you have the money to invest and you have the, the setup to accommodate it, uh, a plate chiller is definitely an investment I would recommend. Yeah, and for anyone that hasn't been around somebody brewing with a plate chiller, it's it's like black magic. I mean, it's just boiling water goes in one end of this thing about the size of a brick, you know, one and a half, maybe two bricks. No, a brick's pretty good. Okay, so about a brick. And it just, it comes out, you know, in the 60s. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, it's amazing, and it makes your brew day so much faster. Because I've used a you know a, a copper immersion chiller, and you know it gets the job done. But it's like forty five minutes, and it wastes a lot of water. Um, the plate chiller, you know, five gallons, ten gallons, and you know you have your your beer completely chilled. So that's definitely another big thing I'd recommend. And you know, I read you can actually use the water that comes out of the plate chiller uh, that you know took the the heat out of the wort. And instead of piping it into the drain, um, if you want to use it, you can use it for cleaning because it's hot water. Or a lot of people, I know you do, um, brew in the basement next to where the washer and dryer are. You can actually pump it into the washer and do a load of clothes with the hot water. That is another excellent tip, yes. I actually read that because somebody felt bad they were wasting all the water from the plate chiller, so... Personally, I think using it to clean the carboys is a, a pretty decent idea. Yeah, if you're using PBW, as long as it's above 70 degrees, you're all right. And uh, usually after the heat exchange, it's about 90. So that should be perfect for the PBW. So other than stir plate, Erlenmeyer, plate chiller, um, anything else major for you know the end of brew that you think would be worthwhile saving up for? A solid thermometer is probably the last thing I would recommend. Um, the Thermopen specifically, it's like a uh, thermometer that's used by health inspectors and uh, other people that have, you know, crucial uh, temperatures involved with their, their profession. Uh, it's okay. like a hundred bucks, uh, but it's absolutely worth it. If you're all grain, it certainly comes in handy in your mash and, you know, anything uh, cool side to make sure it's at the right temperature 
uh, it's very, very accurate and very, very quick. Um, I went through a lot of thermometers, and I think the Thermapen is probably the other thing uh, I would recommend, especially if you're starting out. That's a good solid thing to have, especially if you're using an immersion chiller and you want to check the temperature before you rack it into the fermenter. That's a good thing to use. Well, with number seven out of the way, then let's kind of recap here and see if we forgot anything. Um, start with the yeast starter. Make sure we always do it. Uh, really helps for yeast propagation. Make sure that you get a good foothold when you start. The cleaning and sanitation. Always use PBW. Let it sit for 25, 30 minutes. Rinse it three, four, five times with just regular tap water. Then uh, sanitize with the star sand. Uh, you said, what, 30 seconds? Uh, well, I mean, really, realistically, they say 30 seconds is enough, but they recommend three minutes just to make sure. Okay, so so add the uh, star sand for three minutes. Uh, pour that out. Do not rinse after it. Don't fear the foam. And you can reuse it over and over and over again. Oh, I almost forgot. That was the other big thing you taught me was to not just pour it down the drain. Use it for one or two times. Yeah, you can use so, it for months. Now, you mentioned PBW's temperature-specific. Is the uh, star sand temperature-specific? No, it does not matter. Okay. It just matters what the pH is. So if you have pH strips or a pH monitor, as long as the pH is below 3, you are in good shape. Okay. So number number 3 we had was the aeration oxygenation. Um, use the, uh, the welding tank of oxygen, uh, the diffusion stone. Um, 8 to 10 parts per million, 10 ideal, 8 minimum. Uh, if you don't have that, like I don't have it, uh, splash it around as you're putting the wart into the carboy, shake it up. Um, I found that's a good way to kind of mix the yeast in too, is once I add the yeast starter is to shake the hell out of it. Yep, yeah, it's and, definitely a good thing. Now, the one thing we didn't mention that we mentioned in the last show, just in case somebody didn't listen to that one, is how much olive oil would you use for a 5-gallon batch? I know it's very tiny. Um, I mean, what the what they recommend it's it's kind of crazy. Um, it's like the measurement they give. It's I got that from the yeast book, and it's like a certain volume of olive oil per the amount of cells. So they don't really give a volume. Um, I know a couple of people that do it, and they really just basically just pour a little bit out. I would say you know maybe two tablespoons at the most into it maybe just a tablespoon i think would probably be the best and that would be it okay so one tablespoon for five gallons yeah for five gallons i think that would be a good starting point but yeah in the book they really don't mention um you know unless you have the means to do a cell count um then i definitely recommend just a tablespoon and then go from there and maybe increase it as time uh progresses if it, it isn't doing the trick and not that I'm saying anything bad about the people listening to the show, but I'm pretty sure anyone listening to my show is, does not have the ability to do a cell count. Yeah, I don't have the ability to do a cell count. I have a microscope, but I'm a little lazy. Oh, there you go. So, okay, so about one tablespoon. I, th I think that's fair. I mean, unless you're getting into real crazy specifics, I think these generalizations are good for 95% of people. Yeah, I think that should be fine. Um, then number four we had was the temperature control and that was controlling the temperature after, uh, after brewing, after chilling the wort, um, trying to keep it as close, getting it down to 68, 
um, getting down to 66 and fermenting it at 68 degrees and uh, doing the water bath, putting it in a tub of water to help control it if it's a, a temperature fluctuating area. Yep. Uh, did number five was planning and be prepared. Uh, you know, do the notebook to keep track of all your past brews, uh, to do the steps of what you're going to do. Uh, keep a record of everything you did before. Uh, personally, I like Beersmith. Uh, you met, you like that too. Yep. Uh, number six, freshest ingredients possible. So, um, the vacuum sealed hops, uh, you know, nitrogen, you know, flush with nitrogen if possible. Um, freezing them as cold as possible, uh, giving a little bit more attention to the malt than I think most people do, uh, and paying attention to the malter. And wrapped it up with number seven, the equipment. So paying attention to the equipment post-brew, so stir plates, Erlenmeyer flasks, plate chillers, uh, thermometer, basically everything after you brew is the most important, you're saying. Yep, yeah, the process... You know, once you get everything dialed in, you have a good beer. That's that's the next step you would want to focus on. But yeah, after after everything is done, that's where you want to go. Well, we got this to just about an hour, so unless you have anything else super important that you know you need everyone to know, I think we basically upped everyone's brewing game a couple steps today. Well, I'm a Cancer, and I like crocheting and long walks <laughs> on the beach. Well, if you uh, you make me another one of your pumpkin beers, I might take you for that long walk on the beach. Oh, it sounds like a plan. Consider it on the table for Big Poor 2014. We just need to get someone else we know married. Yeah, or that that would work as well. Who knows? Maybe even me. Hey, who knows? Crazier things have happened. That's true. Well, we got the seven best tips to get to up somebody's game in home brewing. Uh, Andy, thanks a lot. I know it's the holiday season and you deal with customers, so it's kind of hellacious for you right now. I appreciate you taking the time in. Thanks no, no a lot. No problem. No problem. The least I could do any time. And if you have any questions for me directly, uh, find me on Twitter at Jagoff Brewer. Um, I've had one guy ask me questions. So if there are other people out there, uh, don't hesitate. If you have uh, anything you want to know about brewing, I'd love to help out because I've been through your struggle before and had much trial and error to figure out, you know, what I needed to get to this point. So don't hesitate to, you know, get me on Twitter and I'll be more than happy to answer your questions. Yeah. And I'll, I'll put your contact information, um, in the show notes so that anyone listening to this, uh, wants to talk to Andy, uh, I'll put his Twitter information in the post for this episode and you'll be able to figure it out. So Andy, thanks again for taking the time. Uh, have a good one. Cheers. Cheers, man. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Craft Beer Showdown podcast. Make sure to check out craftbeeracademy.com for more information and to give feedback on today's show. Don't forget to watch the next episode live on Google Plus Hangouts or YouTube by going to craftbeeracademy.com slash live dash show.